It's just an understatement of what we can do. Today I want to talk to you on the subject of who is this King of Glory. I want you to turn with me to Psalms 24, teaching the apologetic class. Uh, I had a feeling I would be getting uh, where I am right now. And in the natural, just kind of fed up of hearing about false religions, you know. As I had to study Islam and read the Quran day after day and write about it, you just get to the point where you're just fed up with it. You're just saying enough of the lies, you know. You just want to cover your ears and, and say, I don't want to hear it anymore, you know, kind of like a child. You just want the pure river of God, the pure bread of heaven. And that's what kind of spoke to me. Uh, this morning as I was preparing a message, I just felt in my heart to share with you who God was. And as a matter of fact, it was more than just this morning. It was after last week's message. Um, so many times we're talking about the things of God, the ministry of God, but we don't talk about God. Like, who is God? And what is God like? And who is this King of Glory? And that's the name of today's message. Who is this King of Glory? Psalms 24 1 through 24, I just want to, uh, 1 through uh, 10 rather, just listen to this psalm as you read it with me. It's so beautiful. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? Who has clean hands? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, ye ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. So we want him to come in. Amen. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. So I just want to answer that question even a little bit more in depth today. Who is this king of glory? The psalmist here, David, is wanting to draw close to God. He is wanting to be in God's presence. He says, who may go to the hill of the Lord? This is a reference to how, like Moses, went to Mount Sinai. David had this place in his heart called Mount Zion, which was this spiritual place that he would meet with God. And he used the same type of terminology that Moses would use to meet with God on a mountain. And so people have asked me, does Mount Zion exist as a literal place? No, it doesn't. It exists as a spiritual place. And so this was to David a poetic way of saying, I love to be with God. Now the unique thing about David is that David wasn't a priest in the sense that he came from the priestly line and was ordained to be such. He was brought to be a king, but yet he had priestly privileges, which meant he could make sacrifices and go into the temple and have a unique relationship with God. And also through his writings, he was a prophet. So he was a foreshadow of Jesus to come, who didn't come through the priestly line of Levi, but rather through the line of David, who was a king, a priest, and a prophet. And so that's why he is the son of David. So David is this unique character who just loves God so much and he uses poetry to speak forth the words of God and the way he feels about God and so he says the earth is the Lord, everything in it the world and all who live in it and so he's just declaring who God is and how great God is there he says he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters this is not just only poetic but it's also uh, scientific that we know that water was the form of life and that the earth was mostly water 
uh, and is mostly water, and it was water underneath the earth that came and caused the flood. So literally the earth is founded upon the waters. I don't know if you know that the waters from the flood came from under the earth mostly as he opened up the deep in what we call now fault lines. And looking at verse number 3, he says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He begins to talk about, I just want to be with God. I want to stand in this holy place. I want to be on that hill where God is. And this is what uh, to David was Mount Zion. Now, we know that there wasn't a temple because Solomon, his son, built the temple. And we know at this time there wasn't even a tabernacle because Obed-Edom had the Ark of the Covenant at his house. So how was David even meeting with the Lord? We know that David must have been meeting with the Lord in his private times of communion with God from the times that he was a shepherd taking care of his sheep, learning that as I am a good shepherd to these sheep, the Lord is a good shepherd to me. So he began to realize that without a temple, without the Ark of the Covenant, a tabernacle, he could commune with God. And wherever he was, whether it was on the side of a grassy hill that he was taking care of sheep, or in a valley, that the Lord was always with him. And he always had the potential to be with God. But yet he said that there is parameters. There is a stipulation, a list of requirements to be with God, though he knew he could be with God anywhere. But there were things that he needed to do so that God would be with him. And he answers the question, who may uh, ascend to the hill of the Lord, who may stand in the holy place? He says, he who has clean hands. So he's saying that I have to have a clean conscience, hands representing the conscience of a man. Everything you touch in life is with your hands, and your conscience represents everything you see and hear and think in life. And so the correlation is that your conscience kind of sums up who you are as your hands kind of sum up everywhere you've been and everything you've done. And so he's saying, my hands have to be clean. My conscience needs to be clean before God. That means I've asked for forgiveness for the things I know that I've done wrong. I've asked the Lord to purify me for ill motives and wrong thoughts and selfish ambitions. So he said a clean heart, a clean hands rather. Then he said a pure heart. This representing the inside of who he was. This is his desires, the place of emotion and the place of passion. He desired a pure heart because he knew that God looked at the heart because even when uh, Samuel came to make a king, he looked at all of the brothers first and thought that these who looked right on the outside would be king. But when none of them fit the bill, Samuel learned the lesson, spoke it out loud because God said, I don't look at the outside. I look at the heart, so I don't judge on appearances. And so David himself obviously knew that lesson, that God wasn't looking for another religious person like what became the Sadducees and Pharisees. God was looking for a person that on the inside had a pure heart, whose motives were pure, whose desires were pure, that was loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving his neighbor as himself. Then he goes on to say that he doesn't lift up his soul to an idol, so meaning nothing was going to take the place of God in David's life. He wasn't even going to make an idol out of his kingship. God came before being king. So I don't care how busy you get, you're not a king, so you can't even have the excuse of David. I'm so busy, I'm a president. But even then, David knew that his own kingship could become an idol. He chose to put nothing before God. It was always God as the first priority of his life. And he said, don't swear by what is false. That means not to lie, to bear false testimony, to say you're something that you're not, what we call today a hypocrite. So here David glorifying God is saying, I want to be with God. Stand in his presence. Wherever I am. God can be there with me, and I can be in a great relationship with God. I can be close and intimate with God. But what do I have to do? He says, I have to have a good conscience, clean hands. I have to have a pure heart. 
My motives need to be pure. He said, I cannot lift up my soul to an idol, put anything before God, and I cannot swear by what is false. I have to be honest with who I am before God and people. And then he said, such as, uh, excuse me, he said, this person will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Savior. So he says, this person is going to be blessed and God's going to pour out his spirit and then God will vindicate him, get his back. And then he goes on to say that such is a generation of those who seek him. So there's a generation of God seekers upon every, uh, upon the earth in every generation. I like to think of this as this generation seeking God. But throughout every generation, there has been a group of people within the generation seeking God. Then he gets into this place. He says, lift up your heads, all you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Here he is taking his poetic liberty to describe the coming of God like the coming of a king. How they would open the doors, open the gates, sound the trumpets, and have a big fanfare and hoopla. He is saying, let's do this for God. Let's be excited for God. Now there's two ways to look at this. He can be speaking prophetically as we prepare the way of the Lord's second coming. That the gates will be the heavens, the atmospheres, and that we as God's people are opening them up with our praises, and God is coming in, and we're welcoming Him as His bride in the second coming. Or this can be looked at as a uh, typology of the of the gate, meaning the heart, that you personally need to open up your gate. You need to open up your doors, that the King of Glory may come in, bow down before Him, worship Him, make a hoopla, get excited that God is coming to visit you today, because you have made a place of worship for Him. Either way you take it, it's exciting. He says, lift up your heads, O ye gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. I know I want Him to come in here, and I want Him to come into this planet as well. I want Him to come into our atmosphere. Hallelujah. It says, who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So we learn here that the Lord is a mighty warrior, that the Lord is strong in battle, that He fights on our behalf. And then He says, lift up your gates, uh, your heads, all your gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And uh, really, what I want to talk to you today is about verse 10. Uh, That was just the introduction. Amen. Can you say amen? I didn't come to preach about those things. Just wanted you to have a good exegesis there of the text. What I want to talk about here is, is verse 10, after he already said God's a mighty warrior, He then repeats himself at the end, and he leaves it like this. He says, Who is he, this King of glory? And he says, The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. How would you describe the Lord Almighty today? If you were to talk to an atheist, how would you describe God? If you were to talk to someone who had never heard about our God, maybe they were an animus in a jungle somewhere worshiping the trees as pantheism teaches that everything is God, the tree, the river, the ancestors that have died. How would you describe God to maybe someone who has been brought up to another religion? Islam has 99 names to describe Allah. And the different cults have ways of describing their gods by their names. How would you describe the Lord Almighty? I was just asking myself that question this morning because I've been pondering it this week. And how can I just talk about your God in such a way to encourage you? Well, the first thing that I thought of was, let's go to the book of Genesis. And let's see at the very beginning how this King of glory, the Lord Almighty, reveals himself to us. So I'm just going to give you some simple things that just came into my heart. I know we could go beyond 99 of who uh, attributes of who our God is. And I didn't just want to give you a theological definition, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. I really wanted you just to see him in action and answer the question of today's message. Who is this King of glory? Well, the first thing that you see in verse 1 is he's a creator. He's a creator. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Just think about that. We take that for granted so often. And I know that we have a closed heart towards evolution and the lie that we are uh, of ape-like ancestry. But really, just get this in your heart today. God is our creator. Everything you see, God has created. 
I don't know about you, but that is an amazing thing to understand today. When you fly up in a plane and you see all the clouds of the sky, God created those clouds. When you've gone on vacation and you've seen mighty rivers and you've seen oceans, how many love the ocean? God created those oceans. When you go on mountaintops and you go to the uh, deepest valleys of those mountaintops before you ascend to their peaks, God created them. When you look at the Animal Planet Channel and you see all of these wonderful creatures, God created those creatures. When you look at yourself and how you're created and the intricacies of your eye and your brain and how you operate and feel and move and how you have your existence, God created you. God is your creator. So what you could take from that today is that whatever I do, God has the ability to create success and blessing because he creates whatever I face. He can create a way out of it. Whatever I'm involved in, He can create blessing. God is a creator. You see, you and I are kind of like renovators, not creators. All we do is kind of work with an existing product. We work with the body He gave us, and maybe we can become strong, but we didn't create that body. We work with the existing materials here in the, uh, you know, the element structure with iron and ore and, 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 and copper and gold and wood. We, we work with the elements of these, the earth and we put them in certain ways to fashion buildings and chairs and, and technology. But did we create those things? We didn't create them. We can get together in marriage and holy matrimony and be fruitful and multiply and nine months later see a child that looks like us and we can say we're the parents of this wonderful baby girl or boy. But did we create that child? You see, our God is a creator. Our God out of ex nihilo, out of nothing, created everything. He is that powerful. There is no time in God's economy or in God's business or in God's existence, however you want to look at how God is God, that he is ever out of resources. He is always creating whatever he would need, but he doesn't have a need because he creates before he has a need. So you can't even say that God creates whatever he needs. God creates whatever he wants. Because he has no need because he creates it. Is your God that big today? Who is this king of glory? Is he that big today? Is he big enough to create something new in your life? The Bible says in Second Corinthians, or is it First Corinthians where it says, if any man is in Christ, what is that? Second Corinthians 5.19, thank you. That if any man is in Christ Jesus... He is a what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. He is a new creation. What that literally means is what you become when you are born again has never existed before. All the devil can do is destroy The devil comes and steals what God has created. The devil comes and kills what God has given life. The devil destroys, breaks into pieces that pottery that God has made. But he can't create. God creates. You're born as a sinner. You're born with death upon your soul. Judgment is rightly placed upon you. And you live this world with the actions of Of your father, the devil. And God says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come unto me and drink, and out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. He said, no man can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So however you heard it, whatever phrase you heard it in, Jesus calls you as a child of the devil 
with death and destruction in your life, being uh, abused by the devil himself, being brought under the same punishment. And he says, I'll create in you a new spirit. I'll create in you a new person. You will literally become a new creation. How can he create in you a new person? Because he's a creator. How can he create in you a a can-do attitude in Bible college? Because he is a creator. How can he create sick bodies to be well bodies? Because he is a creator. I want to ask you today, who is this king of glory to you? Is he bound up in restrictive Plans like the city can't build a building to the city council approved. Is he bound up by man's traditions? Is he bound up by a list of can'ts? I can't do this. I'm sorry. I can't do that. I wish I had that in stock, but I can't sell you that. Is God like us? Or is this King of Glory the creator of us? The most powerful being we would ever see. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that God is the creator. And we see that He creates us. And He creates us in His image. And then we go to Genesis chapter 3, and we see that God gives us free will, created free will. People sometimes wonder why would He create free will. That was His prerogative as a creator. Amen? Your bush doesn't ask you, why are you trimming me this way? Your garden doesn't ask you, why are you putting the peaches next to the pears or the cucumbers next to the tomatoes? And the pottery doesn't ask the potter, why did you make me this way? You see, there are so many questions that we have, and at times we need to resolve in our heart, he is the potter, I am the clay. He made us with free will this way for his glory. And so people ask that question a lot, but he did it for his glory. And we see that out of that free will, man chose to sin. And what is the next thing that we see about our God? He's a God of judgment. He's a God of holiness. And you could put them both together. That when he says we're to do something, we're supposed to do it. Because he's holy. Holy means to be separate from things that are evil or unclean. To be pure. If I was to say... This glass of water is holy. It means it has no impurities. You're safe to drink it. And we see that God gives us these commands. So you could say he's a command giver. So many things that we're skipping over, but I'm just trying to point to you some of the things in my heart. He's a command giver. And he says, don't eat of this tree. And then he's holy because whatever commands he gives us, and he tells us a right from wrong, we know that he is always right. And then we see that he is a God of judgment because when we ate of it, he then begins to judge us and put curses upon us. And this is what he begins to say in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. So he begins to curse the serpent. Then he says to the woman, I will increase your pains in childbirth. So he begins to judge her. And then he says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it. So everything and every person gets a curse in this scenario. The serpent gets cursed. The man gets cursed. The woman gets cursed. And the earth gets cursed. That's everything God had created up until that point. He couldn't curse anything else. So he's a God of judgment. Who is this King of glory? He's your creator. He's all-powerful. He can create out of nothing something. He's a lawgiver. He gives you commands, and he expects you to live by them. Why? Because he's holy, and he lives in inapproachable light, as the Bible says. And there is no shifting shadow in him. And the Bible also says that he's a God of judgment, so that when you break his commands, you will face His judgment. Who is this King of glory? He's an awesome God thus far. And we're still just in Genesis, aren't we? I didn't hear an amen on that. I said, isn't he an awesome God? The next thing that we learn is that God is forgiving. 
It says in verse 21, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. The Bible says that he clothed them because they were naked. Why were they naked? Because they had lost their spiritual life with God. They didn't know that they were naked. They only saw the glory of God shining through them. They couldn't see their flesh just like the light bulb has glass and a little brand on it. And you can't see it when it's shining so bright. Because the light, the illumination is really all that you see. And when Adam and Eve had the light turned off, they saw what they were made of, just flesh and blood. But we see here that our God is forgiven. That he's a forgiving God. That he doesn't want to destroy what he's created. And so he covers them with an animal. We see here the first of shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. We see here the concern of a father creator for his children. And I would go as so far to say that the one who walked in the garden with them and put the clothes on them was Jesus Because the Bible says in the New Testament there is only one God and one mediator between man and God. And that is the man Christ Jesus. And so I believe as long as we have ever walked upon this earth and have never ever known God personally. And ever wrestled with him as Jacob did. Or ever saw him in a burning bush. And if we ever heard his voice as it came to Abraham. I believe that it was always Jesus speaking. On behalf of the Father walking with us. And so you could just use your imagination, if you would, to think of Jesus killing an animal and then putting that skin upon Adam and Eve. Today, my friends, he's walking with you to cover you of your sin because he's a forgiving God. No one should ever go to hell. No one should ever walk in sin. The moment they sinned, yes, they suffer judgment. You will suffer consequences upon this earth. And that is right for God to teach you right from wrong that way because you chose it that way. We, as human beings, chose to learn it this way through the curse of this earth. And he will use it for his redemption. But, my friends, there's no reason why you and I should live with sin upon our lives. There is always a king of glory there. To provide a sacrifice to wash us of our sins. And we know the fulfillment of that in the New Testament. That Jesus himself becomes the sacrifice. And it's his blood that covers us. And it's his flesh that was torn for us. So that the veil may be ripped in two. Who is this king of glory? He's our creator. He's our lawgiver. He's holy. He is a judge. And he's a God of forgiveness. And you can now uh, move on to Genesis chapter 18. As God meets with Abraham. You know what I see here? Is that this king of glory, he is close to us. That though he had to guard the Garden of Eden with uh, flaming angels, with flames, uh, with swords of fire, so that we wouldn't live forever in a fallen state, which would make hell on earth, literally, if we would have ate then from the tree of life, there would have been no redemption for us, and that would have became our hell. So he was so kind not to let us eat from the tree of life. And, it, and he, the Bible says, went back to heaven, that the Garden of Eden it wasn't there for us anymore, nor was that relationship. Relationship, walking with them in the cool of the day. But you go to Genesis chapter 18, and it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. What's that next thing that we learn? That he's close to us. He's close to us. What had just happened prior to this? Noah's generation turned their back on God. Remember, he's a holy God. He was grieved because of their sin. He judged them, destroyed the earth. Only eight people survived because he's a creator and he's also a destroyer. He can destroy what he's created. Don't have it in your mind that the devil is the only one who destroys. No, my friends, the devil didn't send the rain that day. Jesus, God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit sent the rain that day. It wasn't the devil who killed Ananias and Sapphira. It was God who killed him. So, yes, the Bible says he also is a destroyer. He has the power to destroy. So Noah and his generation had just suffered. And now we see that Abraham and his generation are coming, and the people are not learning the lesson of who God is. They're forgetting that he's a creator. 
They're forgetting that he's a lawgiver. They're forgiving, forgetting that he is a judge. They're forgetting that he is forgiving of when they make sins. So what do they do? They keep sinning. And what does God do? It says the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. When did he used to walk with Adam? In the cool of the day. Now that the land is cursed, at the hottest part of the day, what does he say? I'm here. I'm not going to let you be by yourself. I'm not afraid of this heat and this curse. I'll still come and meet with you. That says to me, God is near. God is near us, even in the heat of the day, even when we feel the most tired, even when we feel the most discouraged, even when we feel that things are going from bad to worse. The Lord can appear in those times and be with us and say, here I am. Here I am for you today. And we see that the Lord came and was near to Abraham. Now, of course, at this point, there's no doubt in who that is. That's Jesus. And so now that brings us to the question, because I don't have the whole day to go through the Bible, that now reveals to us that our God is near because our God is triune. Our God is triune. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we get the understanding from the book of Genesis when he says, let us make man in our image, that the us there is not a plurality of gods as the Mormons teach, but the us there is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit making man in his image, body, soul, and spirit, with the ability to act and think and to have dominion and subdue the earth. And so at this point, man is in sin, and we have to skip ahead to the book of Exodus and the time of Moses that God says, I can't look upon sin. You can't be in this holy place. And then yet we go further into the New Testament. We see that scripture that I had mentioned before, that there is only one God, but there's a mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so at this point, we know that the Father can't come here. And the Bible says no one has seen the Father. And so we know that when it says Yahweh appeared, it couldn't be Yahweh the Father. It has to be Yahweh the Son. And so here we learn in Genesis chapter 18 that everything we've been learning up until this point, that God is triune and that he's dealing with us through his son. Who is this king of glory? He's God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he is near to us. In the heat of the day, he comes. And what does he do? He sups with us. He eats with us. At this point, the Jehovah Witnesses want to say, well, he was there in spirit. No, the Bible says Abraham washed their feet because there was two visitors. And then we see in Genesis 19 that the two visitors were the very two angels that go to Sodom and Gomorrah. So we know if he was washing three feet and one of them was the Lord and two were angels, that it must have been Jesus' feet he was washing. And it was Jesus who was eating. And it was Jesus who was near. So I learned from this passage that God is near through His Son, Jesus. The next awesome thing that I see in this same passage is further down is that God wishes that none would perish. That He loves His creation because He says, I can't keep what's about ready to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah from Abraham. I must tell him. And here you see the heart of God for his creation. He reveals to us his plan on purpose so that it will draw us to intercede so that then he may act out of his compassion. He doesn't just come and say, I'm going to be compassionate, because that would be violating the law of free will. He has to talk to his friend face to face and let them know of judgment, so then out of their own free will, they could say, well, it's my idea too, and I'm asking for it. Would you do it? And then he says, really, it's been my idea all along, but I couldn't make you do it. I could only guide you to it. And now since you're asking, I agree, I'll spare people. 
Since it was you as the human race who brought the devil in his destruction here, God must obey by the same law of the free will. We must ask him to come. Now, of course, he can come without us, but he bound himself to that same law. That man must ask. That man must choose. That man is not a robot. And so here we see that he says to Abraham, I'm going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham, his friend, hears that. And out of his own free will, he then says, Would you spare Sodom and Gomorrah for 50? And God says, Yes. And you can hear the heart of the, the Father coming through Jesus saying, We don't want to destroy the earth. We don't want to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I want to save them. Keep interceding. Keep pleading. And so he goes down and down to ten. And at this point, somebody said, well, why doesn't, why, why doesn't uh, Abraham just ask for one? Because at this point, I believe it would now impeach his judgment. How could you spare a city that doesn't want you there? That has chosen to reject you and live in gross immorality. You see, at this point, we see that God's mercy does have a line. And it stopped at 10. For whatever reason, it was 10. And at that point, I believe it was just, hey, if there's not 10 there, then you know it's right for me to destroy them. I will now impose my will upon those who have rejected me. But what I notice about this is that God loves when we intercede with him. We could call it being at the bargaining table of heaven. But it's not something to be taken lightly. We're not just bargaining for clothes in the way they do in India, like they have a way of striking a deal. And I like being there, and even uh, Adolfo and I struck a deal on some jewelry and saved a few dollars because it's the art of the deal. It's these cultures that love to bargain. And I don't want you to take it frivolously, but I mean when, what I mean when I say you're at the bargaining table of heaven is that you learn that God wants to go deeper with you and have you intercede and ask for for things that really you wouldn't have asked for unless he said, try me and see what I'll do. You see, right now you wouldn't have enough courage to ask for the whole city. But he keeps telling you, I love the city. And I'm going to judge them if they don't repent. And so out of that heart, you start going, well, God, would you give us a school? Yeah, I'll give you a school. Well, Lord, since you get, you'll give us the school, would you give us this community? Yeah, I'll give you this community. Well, Lord, since, since you'll give us this community, would you give us this city? Yeah, I'll give you this city. Lord, since you gave us this city, would you give us a nation? You see, the Lord wants us to get into that relationship with Him where we can keep feeling the privilege to ask Him to save more, to do more, because He wants to work through us as His people. Amen? And so we see that God is near us, that He cares about us. And then He's redemptive, wanting to save us. Now let's go to the book of John, the New Testament. And let's just see if we can sum it up today. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, so I know Him as Jesus. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. See, how do I know I believe? How do I know that He breathed in me? Because in Him was the life, and that became the light of men. That's why I believe it was Jesus who breathed in me. The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. It goes on to talk about John the Baptist. Then continue on to verse 14. The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then going on down to verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And now I want you to go with me to the book of uh, Revelations, and I want you to see with me. Who is this King of glory? He is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the God that has become the God of this world, uh, the God of our world, of this age. Uh, not to say Satan is, I'm looking up as I'm speaking to you. <laughs> he has become the King of this age, the King of kings. 
And you'll see it right here. Who is the King of glory? He is none other than Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, God, for word searches. Go with me to the book of Revelation. Chapter 19, verse 16. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of all God Almighty, and on his robe is, on his thigh is written this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So today, if I was to describe to you who is this King of Glory, I would describe Jesus to you. And I would start from the very beginning. And I would say that He was our Creator. And that He was the one who walked with us, gave us the laws, and showed us what it meant to be holy. Then when we sinned, He was there to curse us and to judge us. But at that moment, he then sacrificed an animal to show us what he would do. He then judged again through the time of Noah, was grieved and heartbroken. And then in the heat of the day, he came to be near us, to have a covenant with Abraham, the father of faith. And then through his relationship with mankind as the mediator, he has always been mediating salvation between man and his father, between man and his father, a sinful world, and his holy father. He was mediating at the bargaining table of heaven with Abraham that day. And from that point forward, he was the one, just to have you turn there with me now, he was the one in Exodus chapter 23, verse 20, who was the angel of the Lord, set before the people of Israel, to be the one that they were to listen to, to bring the glory of God, the Holy Spirit, into their presence. Just like I have the cloud of glory in my office, we know that the people of Israel had the tangible presence of the kabod, which is the glory in Hebrew, in their presence. But how did that glory come? Look at verse 20. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you. Angel simply meaning messenger there to guard you along the way and to bring you to a place I've prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you to the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and bless, and his blessings will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you, and none of you will miscarry or be buried in the land. I will give you a full lifespan. How? Because the angel of the Lord is with them. And how did they know to move? Because he says you've got to follow him and you've got to listen to him. The cloud by day and the fire by night. Who was that? The third person of the Holy Spirit representing his presence in those ways. He comes in the form of a, of a dove unto Jesus. He comes in the form of clothing tongues of fire in the book of Acts. And so here you have the Father in heaven, the angel of the Lord with them, walking with them and leading them, and the presence of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, being manifested because Jesus is there with them. Would you stand up with me today? Who is this King of glory? He is Jesus. The Lord Almighty, Jesus. He is our God. He is our King. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. So today, if I was to share with somebody today who is God, I would share with them who Jesus is and how He's been with me this whole time and how He's been on this earth this whole time, how He's been near. So today, let it encourage you. Let it encourage you that our, that our God is with us. That Jesus is with us. That the Father has been in heaven. And Jesus has been doing His will. And the Holy Spirit has been manifesting His presence all this time. All this time. And that if anybody wants to get to know the Father. And to know His will. And to experience the Holy Spirit. And to feel the power that, it, that He brings. You have to know Jesus. You have to know Him. And you need to know that He's a Creator. He's a lawgiver. He's a judge. He's merciful. 
He's ever-present. And He's redemptive. And today, He dwells with us full of grace and full of truth. Because no one has ever seen the Father. Some people ask, like in the revelation uh, uh, that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7, will the Father look like that? The image of a man with a beard sitting on a throne. I don't know. Some people debate that. They say that that was just an image to help him see the Father. But the Father will never be seen like that. There are some that literally believe the Father is that wheel within a wheel of Ezekiel that you never see an image, you never see a being, you never see a personality in the sense of you go, that's it, because God is so great. And the only way then you see him is next to the wheel within the wheel is the Son of God. And when you look to Jesus, you understand what you're seeing in the wheel within a wheel. When you look to Jesus, you understand who the Father is. But without Jesus, you would never know the mystery of who the Father is. Just think about that. But you just couldn't just say, oh, there's the Father. Hey, how are you doing? No, you always have to come to Jesus to understand him. That you would never know him. That you would never approach him. That he has no image that you would recognize unless it comes through Jesus. That is what some people believe. I happen to believe that more than to believe he'll be sitting on a throne like another form of a man. And we'll say, oh, here's the Father. Nice to meet you, Father. Nice to meet you, Jesus. Because then what's the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit now like in the form of a man too, as the Mormons teach? No. No. You see, we're not oneness. We're not saying that God is just one person. No, but what we are saying is that the only way God is revealed is through the person of Jesus. The only way you'll know the person of the Father is through Jesus. Because they said, show us the Father. Like, hey, show us Him. Let us, we want to see Him. He said, man, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's where we get the idea that He's a separate person. That he'll speak, but you'll never understand or hear him unless Jesus is there. Because if he speaks without Jesus, as humans, we all die. Where we can't hear the voice. And that without the Spirit, I mean without Jesus, the Spirit would be just kind of like that Jedi force. But with Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes on the presence of who he and the Father is. Because Jesus says, the Spirit does not speak on his own behalf. So the Spirit doesn't walk around going, hey, my name's Bob, I'm the Spirit, how are you guys doing? No, he speaks on behalf of what he hears the Father and Son saying. So when that spirit of intercession comes upon us, it's not the Holy Spirit coming up with his own idea saying, let's pray for the lost today. It's Jesus saying, I want to pray for the lost today. Who will inhabit the Spirit to be motivated and, and, and urged and, and moved with groanings to pray for the lost today? Do you see Jesus in a new way today? He is the center of the triune God. He is the way we know God. Without Jesus, we cannot know God. He is the revelation of who God is to us. He is the King of glory. That's all I can say. He is our King. He is our King. When we bow down, some Jehovah Witnesses have said, we'll, you know, we'll be saying Yahweh. No, we won't. The Bible says when you worship and you bow down in heaven, you will be saying Jesus. You will be saying He is Lord. To the glory of the Father, you will be worshiping Him. The Father wants Him to be the center of worship. The Father wants Him to be the image we all see that reflect who He is. The Father chose Him to be who we know as God. The Father chose Him. And the Holy Spirit draws us to Him, and the Father speaks His will through Him. But He is the center. He is what it's all about. Let that just blow your mind a little bit. Let that just take you deeper. See, theology affects how you live out your life. If you don't see Jesus as your creator, you're thinking you're talking to somebody that has no authority. He has all the authority. He meant that. And when you talk to the Father in His name, that means everything you need that the Father gives, it is through Him that it's now in His hands. And when he sends the Holy Spirit, all the Holy Spirit is doing is representing him. And the personality of the Holy Spirit is identical to his personality. 
And he's with us everywhere we go. That's why I can say Jesus lives in my heart. Because the Holy Spirit is here. And once again, the Holy Spirit is not speaking on his own. The Holy Spirit is speaking what he hears the Father and Son say. And when the Holy Spirit is grieved, who is grieved? The Father and Son are grieved. Because the Spirit and his personality is feeling the emotion that they are feeling. One God and three persons. But the one we know, the one we come to, the one we have a relationship with, the one who makes it all possible, the King of glory, I believe, is Jesus. He is the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for Jesus. I thank you that you reveal yourself through him. Jesus, we thank you today that you have revealed yourself through the Holy Spirit. Now today we have a relationship with you as our creator. So we ask for you to create in us a new heart, a clean, a clean hands. God, remove sin from us so we can be in your presence. We ask that today we would know you as the lawgiver. That all the things that you say, we would obey. You say, he who hears these teachings of mine and obeys them is one who builds their house on a rock. And when the storms come, the storm does not crush that house, but it stands. Lord, we pray that we will hear the teachings that you say of Jesus. We pray that we would be holy, like how you're holy and how your Father is holy. We pray today that we'll accept your judgment, that when you judge us of our sin, that when you convict us through the Holy Spirit of characteristics that are outside of who you are, we would be quick to repent so we don't suffer your judgment. And we pray that you would be ever near with us, As you said, you would never leave us nor forsake us. And that wherever two or more are gathered together in your name, you would be there. And that you would be with us even unto the end of the age. We know you appear through the person of the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us the will of the Father through Jesus Christ, the Son. Holy Spirit, we we welcome you to mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we ask you in Jesus' name to flow your gifts through us so we may do what Jesus did. So that we may live like how Jesus lived. And Holy Spirit, would you... Draw us to intercession, to pray like how Jesus prays. To have a heart for the lost at heaven's bargaining table. That we would intercede with you for the souls of this nation. And the souls of this world. That we would pray like how you prayed. Holy Spirit, guide us into deep groanings and intercession. We know... That God Almighty is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we also acknowledge that without Jesus, we would neither know the Father nor the Holy Spirit. So today, we call you our King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us to know you more. In Jesus' name, in your name. Amen. Come on, praise God.